Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on this TGI Friday edition. It is October the 11th. These go to 11. Thanks so much for joining me here before you get your Thanksgiving long weekend all started. On today's show, I will be talking with B.C. Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson, and I'll also be joined by Liberal Forestry critic John Rustad. Yesterday in the legislature, Rustad called for Donaldson to either resign or be removed from his post, saying that he has not done enough for forestry workers in the province's interior. Premier, you've already fired one minister. What will it take? How worse does a minister have to be before you replace them and put somebody in place who can bring some actual help to the forest workers of this province? Donaldson, of course, fired back, questioning just how important the Liberals were actually viewing this issue. Forestry workers are facing uh, extreme challenges. Forest communities are facing extremely difficult situations in the interior. And, and to show the priority, to make the priority uh, apparent of this opposition, that uh, there were 41 questions over three days. This is the first time that we've actually got to a forestry-related question on this. So, I'm going to be joined by forestry critic John Rustad in about 10 minutes so he can explain exactly why he feels the minister should be removed from his post. And then at around the 50-minute mark of today's program, I will be joined by Minister Doug Donaldson to respond to Rustad's comments. To kick off the back half of today's program, though, I will be speaking with Greenpeace and the head of its Oceans and Plastics campaign. Nestle and Tim Hortons were some of the most common pieces of branded garbage found in a Canada-wide trash audit by Greenpeace for the second year in a row. Yes, this week it came out with its top five culprits when it comes to uh, the, the number of branded garbage found in its uh, Canada-wide trash audits. And there are, of course, as I mentioned, some familiar faces or familiar names, if you will, at the top of that list, with the top two being the same top two as they were a year ago. Uh, what are those other top three? We'll stick around to find out. Uh, we'll also be talking with uh, with Sarah King about why it is so concerning and, you know, where these items are ending up. Also, what can we do as consumers to possibly change the way these companies package their products and reduce their waste in the future? So we'll be t- discussing all of that in about uh, 20 minutes or so. So stick around for that. Now, since it is Friday... I thought I would do something a little bit different and uh, share a few fun facts about absolutely nothing in particular. It's your fuzzy, feel-good, far-out, fact-on Friday with Jeff Andreas. All right, where to begin? Well, if you can't tell in my voice that I am not right at 100%, which is a real shame since I am off to L.A. for the weekend. Hopefully the warm weather down there will help me out and make me feel a little bit better. I know attitude-wise, it'll definitely give me a boost. Uh, but, you know, I could definitely use a, a little bit uh, a little bit of a bump in my immune system, I think. So, uh, speaking of L.A., did you know that in 1892, oil was discovered near what is now Dodger Stadium? Well, I guess they can resume their search for more now that the Dodgers are out of the playoffs. 
Yes, that was very stupid. I apologize, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Just a little dig at Dodgers fans. Just a little dig. Uh, but like I mentioned, I'm a bit under the weather here heading in to the long weekend. So that's a real bummer. So, of course, I will be really trying to increase my vitamin C levels to try and boost my recovery time here. Did you know that the original oranges from Southeast Asia were actually a tangerine-pomelo hybrid, and they were actually green? In fact, oranges in warmer regions like Vietnam and Thailand still stay green through maturity. So, of course, this begs the question, which orange came first? The color or the fruit? The answer is technically neither. The linguistic ancestor to today's word, orange, was actually first used to describe the tree that the fruit grows on. The word didn't come to describe a color until almost 200 years later, making the fruit the clear winner. In 1512, a description of the color using the word orange appeared in a rather strange place, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the use of the word first appeared in a will. So, the final piece of this particular puzzle, how did people describe the color before 1512? Well, according to Huffington Post, speaker of Old English first used the word, speakers, excuse me, of Old English, first used the word gilariad, meaning yellow-red. So there you go. Now you know a little bit more about oranges, the fruit, and the color. Don't you feel just a little bit smarter now as a result? All right, well, let's, uh, let's try one more here. Sticking with my theme of being ill, did you know that Kleenex was originally intended for use in gas masks? When there was a cotton shortage during World War I, Kimberly Clark developed a thin, flat cotton substitute that the Army tried to use as a filter in gas masks. The war ended before scientists perfected the material for gas masks, so the company redeveloped it to be smoother and softer and then marketed it as Kleenex, as a facial tissue instead. So the end of the war in 1918 brought about an end to that gas mask project, as I mentioned, and with a surplus of cellucotton, KC needed to find another commercial application for the material. So in the early 1920s, C.A. Bert Forness convinced conceived, excuse me, conceived the idea of ironing cellulose material to make a smooth and soft tissue. So with the much experimentation, facial tissue was born in 1924 with the name Kleenex. Now the name most likely was derived from the word cleansing, of course, which makes sense, which was then shortened to clean, while the capital K and the EX ending were adopted from Kotex, which had been introduced four years earlier. So there you go. Now for the rest of today, I will be using my gas mask filters to blow my nose and eating oranges that somehow in other places of the world are not orange at all, but are actually green. Or maybe I should be calling them yellow reds. I don't know. One of the two, I guess, would work. Anyway, I don't think I'll be eating any green oranges around here, and that uh, honestly is just a weird thing to say out loud. I'm going to have a green orange. I'm going to eat a green orange. I'm trying to picture it, and it just feels weird. So there you go. I hope you feel a little bit smarter here on this TGI Friday. This has been my fuzzy, feel-good, far-out fact on Friday. Coming up, John Rustad will be joining me over the phone to talk about his concerns with the NDP government and how they have handled 
the forestry file. It's been uh, almost a month since they announced that $69 million fund, and he has some concerns about that and how that's actually going to help uh, forestry workers here in BC's interior. And, of course, at the end of the program, it will be joined by Doug Donaldson himself, and we'll probably get a little bit more of an update on exactly what is happening with that fund. So make sure to stick around for that. I know many in the region will be interested to find out just where that fund is and how people can go about potentially accessing it here in the near future. So like I said, Rustat called on Donaldson to either be fired or to resign. So to uh, get a response to his comments and his actions yesterday in the legislature, please stick around after the break. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on this Friday. After a bit of a fiery exchange in the legislature yesterday between uh, liberal forestry critic John Rustad and forestry minister Doug Donaldson, uh, Rustad had actually called on Donaldson to either resign or to be fired. Here to talk about those comments now is BC liberal forestry critic John Rustad. John, thanks so much for joining me. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing here today? Oh, doing as well as can be. <laughs> All right, well, it's Friday, so looking forward to a long weekend, I'm sure. Um, so, John, maybe just start by giving me a quick rundown of your comments here yesterday. I guess just just give me a description of why you think that uh, Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson should be removed from his post. Well, we've had uh, more than 100 different uh, announcements of curtailments, temporary or permanent closures. Uh, we've seen over 6,000 direct jobs impacted by this, uh, with thousands of others in terms of the spin-off jobs. We've got 3,000 people on Vancouver Island on strike in the forest sector, impacting thousands more. Um, you know, you've got 230 logging trucks with 400 uh, truckers, uh, forestry workers going through Vancouver protesting. And just uh, just last Friday in Williams Lake, you've got forestry workers holding a fundraiser just to raise money to help forest families be able to buy food. And the response from this government has been absolutely, uh, you know, zero. There's, it's it's just shameful the fact that they have been ignoring this. And quite frankly, Minister Donaldson, if he's not going to do the job, he should step down and let somebody in there that will do the job. So, given all of that, obviously you must have some. Um, ideas of, of what you would do had you been in that post of, of kind of how you could help some forestry workers here in the interior. So what, what would your plan or what sort of ideas do you have that you think would be beneficial to the forestry workers here in the BC interior and, and what, what exactly could you as a, as a Liberal government do to help out if you were in that post? We laid out a, a five-point plan last June. We sent a letter to the Premier uh, and to the Forest Minister calling on them to take steps uh, back then to try to uh, help ease the crisis. And this has been going on for months. It's not just uh, new. Uh, we've had many contractors that haven't had any consistent work since Christmas of last year. And so we, there are steps that could be taken, immediate steps in terms of a, a, an aid package to get into uh, the communities, to help communities, to help workers through this sort of thing so that they don't have to resort to fundraising just simply for food. Um, there are packages that, that need to be looked at in terms of uh, employment, uh, working with the federal government, and the, and the B.C. government ignored doing that until just before the election, which, of course, uh, you can't. Uh, federal government can't respond during election. But the biggest issue we have is our forest sector is uncompetitive. We're the highest cost producers in North America. 
mills in Alberta and Ontario and other places are operating, but they're not in British Columbia because of our high cost structure. We need to be uh, take a, a serious step towards driving down those costs, both uh, a rework of stumpage to make, uh, to make our stumpage more competitive and reflecting current market conditions, as well as the, the overall cost structure, trying to drive it down so that we, our mills, quite frankly, can operate and we can compete with other jurisdictions. Now, um, you know, just sort of among those things you talked about were, you know, some potential programs for, for workers to, to have some, uh, you know, a way to, I guess, bridge the gap while they're not working or, or have, uh, you know, some money so they don't fundraise to put food on the table. Um, now, the, the NDP government did announce a $69 million fund, uh, you know, three and a half, four weeks ago, uh, $40 million for early retirement, some money in there for short-term forced employment programs. Uh, additional programs for grants and skills training. Um, so I guess what is your concern about that fund? Because obviously, uh, you know, you're not happy with what was announced. Uh, you, so w- what are your concerns with that particular fund? What do you see as the issues there? Um, you know, obviously that's got to be one of the things that concerns you here uh, in this uh, current current time when, when we're talking about forestry workers. Well, first of all, that fund was announced, um, and it'll be over two years, not one year. Uh, the second thing, there hasn't been any of that money that's actually gone out uh, already. Uh, they announced it, and they didn't even have any plans in terms of how that money would be spent uh, in terms of how people could access it. But the most disturbing piece of that is they actually took the Rural Dividend Fund, a fund that many communities rely on to be able to um, develop uh, services or, or support projects in their communities. They took that fund to be able to pay for this thing. And so when you look at the $69 million, the $40 million for early retirement, that's based on companies having to match the funds. When companies are losing money, there's no way they're going to be able to come up with that kind of money to be able to match those funds. So when you, when you really boil it down, there's actually no support directly for forced families in that program. There's some training dollars, which are not new dollars. They're simply uh, a repackaging of training that's in place. And then a $15 million fund to be able to help contractors uh, with some uh, with uh, brush removal and, and fire preparedness. I think that's actually a good piece, but the problem is it's spread over two years, and no one knows how they can even access it at this point. Uh, joined on the line right now by BC Liberal forestry critic John Rustad. So when, when you're talking about a removal or re- resignation of the, the current forestry minister, obviously that would just uh, sort of shuffle the chairs and would still involve, um, you know, just someone new in the position, still under the same umbrella of the NDP, I guess. So do you really think that um, there would be a significant change if those chairs were shuffled and you just saw, um, you know, someone new in that position? I guess what, what confidence do you have that a different minister would actually uh, change the way that things are being handled? Well, given that the Premier uh, called us whiners for even raising this issue, and given that he you know, talks about rural communities as being spoiled children wanting it all now, I don't hold a lot of hope, but the Forest Minister, quite frankly, uh, is the lead person. That's the person that needs to be going to Treasury Board fighting for money. They need to be standing up talking about uh, the crisis that this is recognizing the fact that if they don't do anything, this crisis will turn into a disaster for our forest sector. You need to have a champion that's in that role, and quite frankly, we don't have it. The other day, in question period, when we asked the the minister a question, he was laughing and got up and was smirking because he had some well-prepared response. That's not what our forest sector needs. People are hurting. Families are hurting. We need a forest minister that understands, that cares, and that's actually going to take some action to be able to help the people in this province.
Um, and yeah, just following up on that specific exchange there, one of the things that uh, Donaldson had said as well, um, you know, was it took until 40 plus questions during question period for uh, the Liberals to bring up a, a question in regards to forestry. Um, and then obviously using that uh, as, as a way to say, you know, how, how seriously are you guys actually taking the issue of forestry here in BC? Uh, just just what, what is your response to that? Do you, do you have a response to that specific uh, um, comment that was made? Well, sure. I mean, he he can yuck it up if he wants. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that there is serious help that's needed for our forest sector. But, you know, there's other issues that are going on, too. When you have, uh, you know, a premier and his chief of staff deleting evidence, um, you know, shredding information, you've got a minister that has been fired under criminal investigation. Uh, there are other, other issues that need to be addressed. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there are serious issues on the forest sector that need to be addressed. And this minister has been vacant uh, and has ignored this issue basically since he's been in there. On top of that, you know, he absolutely horrendously handled the caribou file. It was a complete disaster. They had to bring in help and process it there. Almost every file this minister has touched has turned into a disaster, which is why, quite frankly, we need somebody in there that's going to be effective. All right, John. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join me here on the program today. I really appreciate it. I guess uh, just any final words before I let you go? The forest sector has always been the backbone of our province. Uh, It is important to so many communities. Over 140,000 people around this province are directly or indirectly uh, engaged in the forest sector. They've provided billions of dollars to the quality of life we have in this province. It's not too much to be asking government to step up to the plate to be able to help this sector at a time when it's in a crisis like this. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, hopefully you can uh, enjoy your long weekend. Thanks, John. Take care and have a good day. Awesome. That was BC Liberal Forestry Critic. John Rustak and Dren uh, Rustad, excuse me, and uh, of course, as I mentioned, he had an exchange with Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson yesterday, asking him to be fired or resign. Uh, we'll have Donaldson here on the program in about uh, 20 minutes or so, so stick around for that. Coming up after the break, though, Greenpeace is out with its top uh, polluters here in Canada when it comes to the corporate world. Uh, hasn't been a whole lot of change atop that list, so stick around, and we'll be talking more about that after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back here to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks for joining me here on Friday. Greenpeace is out with its annual list of large polluters in Canada, and there are some familiar names at the top of the list. I'm joined on the phone now by Sarah King, Greenpeace Head of Oceans and Plastics Campaign. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, I guess you guys at Greenpeace obviously do this trash audit every year. I guess, why do you think it's an important exercise, uh, you know, to conduct on an annual basis? Well, a lot of communities are faced with plastic pollution in all different forms. So whether they're a coastal community or they're in an area where, say, infrastructure to cope with the huge volume of plastic that's coming at us in our daily lives um, is lacking. We wanted to do an exercise to actually connect the source of the trash back to the companies. Um, And so what the brand audit does is it takes a usual beach cleanup or shoreline cleanup one step further. So we look at the plastic pollution that has an actual company name on it. We gather that data across Canada and actually around the world. And then we create a list of the companies that are most responsible for the pollution that we're seeing. 
And then once you collect all that data and sort of identify some of the problem or, or I guess more concerning or more uh, volume creating companies, what do, you, what do you guys do with that data? I mean, obviously you have it and you're able to identify who sort of the bigger culprits are, uh, but then, then where do you go from there? So, you know, as you've seen through our release, we shine a light on those companies and we ask them to be accountable for not just the pollution that we're seeing, but also just for the full life cycle of their products. So that's really what hasn't been happening. You know, companies are able to pump out billions and billions of, of disposable products. And the reality is, is that less than 9% of that is, is being recycled in Canada and around the world. And really, these companies need to be moving towards packaging alternatives that aren't creating so much waste and ultimately ending up in our environment. Okay, so given all of that, let's dig into the data here a, a little bit. So you identified the trash of some 240 companies, but almost 40% of the branded plastic pollution belonged to the top five. Uh, those were Nestle, Tim Hortons, Starbucks, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola. Uh, Tim Hortons ranked first in six of the nine locations that you guys were uh, doing these trash audits in. So um, I guess when you look at that and just sort of how small a percentage of companies are responsible for such a large percentage of the plastic pollution, um, I guess, does that just allow you to sort of target some of those bigger players as sort of the ones that if they were able to shift some of those production habits, that it would have a significant impact on the amount of plastic pollution that's being produced? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think many of us kind of recognize a company like Tim Hortons as one of our most iconic uh, forms of plastic pollution. You know, their cups and lids we see through our communities, through the environment, and increasingly we see the pollution of these other companies as well. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, you know, um, highlighting these major plastic polluters and calling on them to create alternatives starts to... Um, help create better models, models that are based on reuse, uh, refill systems, and force them to ultimately be part of a solution uh, that isn't so reliant on, on disposability. But a lot of these companies, say Nestle, Coca-Cola, uh, PepsiCo, that was in our ranking last year, um, you know, they're part of a large group of fast-moving consumer goods companies, you know, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Campbell, some of those common names, um, and they're sold in retailers. And retailers are also a big part of this discussion because that's where consumers are interacting with these products. That's where they're going to get, uh, you know, the bulk of their daily needs. And so also by highlighting uh, the major polluters, we can say to retailers, look, you need to work with these big retail or these big companies to pilot systems that are based on reuse and stop selling so much overly packaged goods. I'm joined on the phone now by Sarah King, Greenpeace Head of Oceans and Plastics Campaign. Um, so I guess when, uh, can you go over where these nine audits, audits took place? Just out of curiosity, I guess, were you looking at some of the bigger uh, like landfills or, or you mean you mentioned some ocean cleanups? Uh, can you just sort of go over where these audits did take place? You don't have to go over all nine necessarily, but just a, a sort of a general sense of what you guys did in order to collect this data? Sure. So we partnered with different groups that already conduct annual shoreline cleanups. Um, but this year we actually took a little bit of a different approach. So we did repartner with Surfrider uh, Vancouver and they do an annual cleanup at Kitts Beach, which is a really popular beach here. Um, and so that was one of the, the locations and we usually get, unfortunately, you know, a lot of pollution in that area. Um, but we also did 
uh, say, smaller cleanups. So, for example, in Covehead PEI, um, it's a popular tourist area, but it's actually sort of a more remote part of a national park there. And so we did a little cleanup there. Um, we did a cleanup in a park in Toronto. Last year, we did a, a cleanup on the Don River. So we tend to mix it up each year to try to get a sense to see if the same culprits are popping up, kind of regardless of where you're actually doing a cleanup. And we also wanted to make the audits more accessible to more people. So, you know, if they're unable to join a large community event, they can just do a mini audit in their community. So we also had a couple um, that sort of fell under that category. Okay, so you guys did a, a bunch of different areas, definitely able to get sort of a wide array of where things might be uh, more of a problem than others, um, you know, not specific to any certain type of location like a beach cleanup or anything, but definitely some, yeah. some variance there as well. So that's, that's good to see. Um, now, when it comes to, you mentioned when you collect this data, you know, you can kind of use it to target the companies and target retailers to, to sort of see if you can get them to sort of change some of their packaging habits um, and, and reduce this plastic waste that we are seeing. I guess, what about the, the role of the consumer in all of this? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, they make it and we buy it and whether they make it in plastic or, or something else that's reusable, I guess, um, it's we're still going to buy it regardless, but uh, I guess what, what can the consumer do? Should we just be more aware, I guess, of what products we're purchasing and what they are packaged in? And maybe if we are uh, a little more conscious of, of having reusable products, that maybe these companies will then look at that and sort of change their habits as a result of what's being purchased? Like, what, what, what role does the consumer have in order to, to change some of these um, products and, and habits of, of packaging? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a piece of it is, uh, you know, kind of modeling the behavior that we want the, the companies to um, to provide for us. So, you know, whenever possible, bringing your own mugs, bringing your own containers, uh, bringing your own bags, that helps to send a signal to companies that there is a growing movement of people that are interested in reuse and plastic-free alternatives. That is a big part of it. But the reality is, is that a lot of people really don't have a lot of options. You know, a lot of people, despite their best efforts to avoid plastic packaging, um, for example, they, there just aren't very many different opportunities or alternatives for them to be shopping or buying plastic free. And that's why the sort of the best thing that someone can do is use their voice and tell their supermarket chain, tell Tim Hortons, tell you know, send an email um, to Nestle and say, look, you know, I'm tired of this over-plasticized life and I'm tired of all of my products coming in plastic. I really want reusable alternatives. Um, and that's really, really important because as companies see the growing movement of people that want alternatives, then they're going to be more likely to move in that direction. Right now, they're very stuck in this throwaway model that we've all become accustomed to. Uh, they're really pointing a lot to false solutions. So other disposable alternatives based on bioplastic um, or other bio-based materials, but they're not actually saying, okay, you're right, we need to move away from this throwaway model that's creating so much waste and pollution, and we need to move towards more sustainable reuse-based alternatives. All right. Um, that's pretty much wraps up our time here, Sarah, but I will ask one more quick question because we here in BC are seeing a lot more um, government movement, particularly from the municipal level of, of 
communities trying to kind of get away from this. And we see things like plastic bag bans sort of starting to be implemented. Um, and the province is looking to do some work on that regard as well. I guess just how big of an impact do you think that has? Because obviously we were talking about more on the, the consumer side and the grassroots level when it comes to individuals. But what role does government have to play as well? Do you think that will really start to, to push uh, for change? Yeah, definitely. We need to see governments work together to ban the most problematic and unnecessary single-use plastic. So that's stuff that we regularly see in the environment through these cleanups, um, stuff that we know already has alternatives, stuff that we know that's toxic. We need the province, the federal government, uh, all levels of government actually to work together to move towards a federal ban. Um, that's really the only way that we're going to start to see the significant impact in the environment, positive impact in the environment, and start to move away from this waste and pollution crisis that we're currently in. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it, and uh, have yourself a great long weekend. Thanks a lot. You too. Awesome. That was Sarah King, Greenpeace Head of Oceans and the Plastics Campaign. Coming up next, well... To end things off, I'll be getting a response from the Forest Minister, Doug Donaldson, in regards to what John Rust had said here on the show uh, just a short time ago. So stick around for that. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Happy Friday and welcome back here on the Jeff Andrea Show. As always, thanks so much for tuning in with me. Uh, yesterday in the legislature, B.C. Liberal opposition forestry critic John Rustad called on Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson to step down or be fired as he ha saying he hasn't done enough to help forestry workers here in the interior of B.C. Rustad says it's painfully clear that there's no plan from this NDP government to plan to support workers and families in communities. Here to talk about those comments and give his side of the story is Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining me here. Hello, Jeff. So, uh, I guess, first of all, what's your initial response to these comments that, uh, you know, Rustad's saying you haven't done enough to help the forestry industry and its workers here in the interior? What, what, what's your first rebuttal to that? Well, I believe that out-of-work forestry workers in the interior and uh, those communities that are hurting in the interior would rather uh, hear uh, more uh, in question period about uh, our $69 million support program and our strategies to address the renewal of the interior forest sector, uh, focusing on value over volume. But uh, that's the time for the opposition to ask questions, and if that's the way they want to use their time, then that's up to them. Um, yeah, so, so talking about that $69 million fund uh, you know, for workers in communities affected by the forestry crisis, um, Rustad had said taking the money from the Rural Dividend Fund to put towards that, I guess, uh, you know, he had a number of concerns with that uh, in his question to you during question period. Um, I guess just uh, what, what is your response to the fact that, you know, money is being diverted from this Rural Dividend Fund, uh, you know, to put towards the forestry workers? Um, obviously, he had some issue with where that money was coming from. I mean, what did you have to say to that? Well, first and foremost, uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, out-of-work forestry workers in the interior communities were put at the front of the line when it came to uh, resources that the government can supply to uh, support them. And uh, that's what we did with the $69 million support program. Uh, it was a cross-ministry program. Uh, it required reallocation of funds, and that's what we've done. Uh, I understand that... Uh, 
many uh, um, communities who have um, had applications in for the rural dividend funding uh, had questions. I met with them, uh, many of them, at the Union BC Municipalities Annual General Meeting. Uh, I also wrote a letter to each of the applicants uh, outlining that their applications would be retained. I understand how much work it takes to put those applications in. And uh, where possible, they could be redirected and they'd be kept uh, uh, for consideration in the next fiscal year when the funding uh, will be restored to that program. So what is the latest on this $69 million fund? Um, you know, I haven't really heard a whole lot about it in the last uh, three and a half, four weeks since it was announced. Um, I guess just what is the latest in terms of people trying to access that? I assume there's been quite a lot of people inquiring about it. Um, just sort of what's happened in those three and a half weeks since uh, since it was first announced. Yeah, we've been putting uh, working hard across ministries to uh, put the... Uh, programs in place. Uh, the Ministry of Labor, the Ministry of Advanced Edu- Education, and my ministry are all uh, part of uh, rolling out those uh, packages and those uh, support offers, and that uh, will be happening soon. Uh, the uh, part that uh, my ministry is most focused on is the $15 million program for supporting contractors in, in work around their communities in the bush, so actually putting contractors back to work, um, as well as the uh, community grant program for communities who have experienced uh, direct mill uh, closures. That was still part of the uh, rural dividend program. The Ministry of Labor will be looking after the uh, coordination offices uh, around the interior for forest workers who are seeking retraining or, unemplo- or, or uh, other employment opportunities, as well as the bridging uh, program. And the Ministry of Advanced Education will be rolling out the uh, the training, the $12 million training program. So. Uh, all that is uh, is set to be uh, rolled out, uh, and uh, we anticipate that'll uh, be happening uh, starting next week. Okay, so when we're we're talking about next week, I guess uh, are you you mean like um, people are going to kind of start to be aware of where uh, the process is, or are dollars going to actually start to be handed out? Well, we'll start uh, being able to direct uh, the inquiries to uh, specific pools and, and programs, and uh, and actually uh, some of the projects on the ground being uh, being announced as far as uh, contractors go. So, you know, we're very aware of uh, how uh, people are uh, in extremely uh, stressful situations. Uh, we know many of the mills uh, uh, had their last days in in august the majority in august and september and so uh we're we're intent on rolling this program out before the mills actually shut down uh, we had community transition teams in those communities where the announcements were made uh back in uh, june and july um matching people up in, in a coordinated effort and and then we understood uh, from traveling to the interior communities my parliamentary secretary Ravi Kalan and myself, that uh, there were some gaps that were needed, and this is uh, why we announced the $69 million program. Um, I, one of the things that Russ said did refer to, um, you know, when he was on the floor asking, asking uh, in question period, was talking about these workers in Williams Lake that he says are fundraising so that they can buy food and uh, says it's shameful, quote-unquote, that the Premier, um, you know, has basically left these people to fend for themselves. Um, 
I guess just in response to people who maybe are, you know, waiting on some form of funding or are having a, a bit of a struggle as a result of what's happened in the forestry industry, um, I guess, do you have any message for those people who are, you know, sort of really, really waiting and in need of some, some assistance at this point in time? And, um, you know, you mentioned obviously next week it's going to kind of start to roll out that process and maybe they'll have a little bit more knowledge of how they can move forward and, and sort of when things might come together for them. Um, but just people who are struggling, I guess, do you have any specific message for them as, uh, uh, you know, as, as Rustad is calling you out saying that there there's an issue with these people, but uh, I assume that, you know, you you probably have some response in terms of uh, what those people are going through. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, there can be nothing more stressful than uh, losing your job and not knowing uh, where the next job or the next paycheck is coming from. I am from a small community in the northwest of B.C., and uh, we lost our major mill uh, in the early 2000s, and so... Uh, I witnessed what kind of stress that can put on families and, and relationships and communities. So, uh, as I said before, we had community transition teams um, activated uh, immediately uh, when it was announced a mill would be permanently closed in a community. And so they've been working already over the last several months, uh, putting on a job fair, coordinating job fairs and ensuring that people uh, had the uh, the right access to in, on, on em, or employment insurance um, support uh, uh, and coordinating with the, the companies uh, who have responsibilities in, in collective agreements, for instance. So those things were going on already. Uh, however, uh, it was uh, obvious uh, from what we heard and, and we wanted to hear from communities directly and workers directly what uh, other measures, uh, you know, that weren't being addressed. And this is uh, why we uh, we created the $69 million support program. As far as the overall picture, and, uh, you know, I we are focused on the immediate, but we're also focused on uh, turning this uh, interior forest renewal process around and making sure that uh, we're better positioned going into the future. And that's kind of work, unfortunately, could have been started uh, earlier. Back in 2015, uh, the BC Liberals commissioned a a study by uh, forest uh, economist experts that said up to 13 mills could be closing, and yet they did very little to prepare communities and workers. So uh, we want to make sure that we're on top of it and getting things turned around. And uh, it's just uh, unfortunate the work didn't start earlier under the BC Liberals. Perfect. I, I, that's about all I have for questions for you here, Minister. Anything else you want to add before I let you go? I think it's really important uh, for uh, workers and communities to know that uh, the uh, the stress that they're under is uh, well recognized, uh, that we want to uh, make sure that those workers who are uh, seeking retraining, uh, that that's available, that those workers who uh, perhaps want to uh, seek a bridge to early retirement, uh, that that's possible. But overall, the message is that uh, the forest sector is still going to continue to be a significant part of rural economies. And uh, the work that we're doing on the interior renewal process uh, will, will be a big part of that. And we want to focus on uh, getting more value out of every log, more jobs out of every log that comes out of the forest because the volume isn't there anymore. So we're focused on maximizing value rather than maximizing volume. And the industry uh, is definitely on that same course as us. Well, thank you so much for your time, Minister. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time to speak to me today. And um, I uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks very much, Jeff. Awesome. That was uh, BC Forestry Minister Doug Donaldson.
Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have yourself a wonderful Thanksgiving long weekend, and I'll be back here on Tuesday morning at 9. We'll see you then.